APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On April 8th, we recorded a video dialogue with Josh D'Angelo, Patrick Kayan, and Kimberly Richards on adapting your practice amid COVID-19. Here's that discussion. COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Josh D'Angelo. I'll be serving as a moderator and a panelist today. And first and foremost, we just want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone at APTA for allowing us to be on the panel today. And thank you to the viewers at home that are joining us. And I know I speak for each of the panelists here today when I say that our hearts and our thoughts are with everyone who has been most directly impacted by the global health pandemic at this time. And we know as a community, it's, it's more important than ever that we unite and come together. And I'm so fortunate today to be joined by two, potentially three other panelists who are business owners for our discussion. We have Kimberly, Patrick, Kimberly and Patrick who are joining us. And the format today is that we'll go ahead and first briefly introduce ourselves to buy, provide a bit of background and context to where we're coming from. The second thing we'll be doing is each going around and briefly discussing how we're adapting our clinics to the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then really where we're gonna spend most of our time is opening up to questions. We wanna hear directly from you. So if you have a question about how we're adapting and what we're doing for the clinic and the community, please go ahead and type it in the comments box on Facebook as we go about the Facebook Live, and we hope to answer many of the questions that are here today. Uh, at this time, I would love to introduce Kimberly and have her talk to us a little bit about where she's coming from and her background in clinic. Thank you, Josh. Um, hey, everyone. Um, one little correction, I'm actually not the business owner for my clinic, um, but I work at a step ahead physical therapy in Roswell, Georgia, which is just north of Atlanta. Um, my business owner, my practice owner, his name is Brad Freemeyer. He's another physical therapist. Um, and we are a standalone general outpatient ortho clinic, um, privately owned. And our practice, um, we've been open for 12 years. Um, there, I've been there for four and a half. There's been a longstanding um, philosophy with our clinic to do um, health promotion and injury and disease prevention with the community, as well as, of course, with our patients, kind of in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Um, so we incorporate in our practice, we have um, a, a contract with our local municipality to do injury prevention work with an, a functional movement screen-based type of program. Um, so we're still carrying that out via telehealth now at this point. Um, but we also do very frequently um, community health promotion events. So we do injury screenings, injury prevention screenings, and movement screenings. Um, we do workshops both in our clinic and at other places. Like we have a, a Pilates facility nearby that we've been working with and senior centers and libraries and stuff. Um, and so we've been um, trying to find ways to rapidly be able to still reach our community and our patients um, as well as a broader community. So that's um, should I talk a little bit about what we're doing yet? Sure. Why don't we go ahead into that? Okay. Um, so the primary thing that I'm still doing to kind of reach everybody, we are live streaming every day um, exercise class, basically. Um, this is something new in the COVID-19 era here. Um, so on a, from our Facebook page, which is a step ahead physical therapy, um, we I put together an exercise program that's about 20 minutes. It's kind of Tabata style. Um, where you're doing 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off, but it's really geared towards people who are not up to all the high intensity interval training and higher intensity, wonderful exercise offerings that are out there right now. Um, because for those of us in our populations, most of them are not up to that. Um, so I wanted to make it um, accessible for people who want to stay active or start to get active, but are just not up to that, that speed yet. So that's the primary thing that we're doing um, kind of extra or, or adapting how we normally reach the community um, is in that way. Great. Thank you so much, Kimberly. And just a reminder to all the viewers at home, if you have questions as we go, please leave them in the comment box and we'll make sure to answer them. But at this time, it's my pleasure to introduce Patrick. If you could please tell us a bit about your business and how you guys are responding, that would be appreciated. Sure. Thank you, Josh. My name is uh, Patrick Ian. I'm a Canadian physiotherapist. Um, I'm, uh, we're just outside of Ottawa, Ontario, so way north from you guys. Um, so uh, we, uh, I just start by saying that we are um, a little bit behind you guys uh, in terms of our curve. We're about two to three weeks uh, behind, so our, our preparations are probably um, a little different than what you have faced uh, so far. Um, we have uh, four uh, 
rehabilitation sports medicine uh, clinics uh, in the Ottawa Valley. Um, and uh, we've been, like you guys, forced to mostly close our operations. Um, so we've done uh, sort of a four-prong attack where the first thing we've done is we've established our urgent care um, services. So uh, in three of our clinics, we offer urgent care for uh, people that um, have conditions that are likely to worsen, conditions that may lead them to hospitalizations, um, uh, post-operative uh, patients, and uh, certainly frontline healthcare workers. So we're trying to um, uh, prevent these people from getting into uh, hospitals or having to go to hospitals for uh, other reasons um, and uh, freeing up our, uh, our physicians so that they can uh, be working in the local hospitals. Um, the second thing we've done is we've um, uh, we've approached our local hospital and um, we've uh, rostered our physiotherapist with the hospital um, so that um, we can help uh, empty the hospitals, create more bed space, um, reactivate patients much faster. Uh, and once the uh, once the it reaches us and, and we get to a critical mass of people that need to be hospitalized, that. Um, we're going to be part of the solution there in uh, in helping them out. And it keeps our, our physiotherapists busy and involved in, in this process as well. Um, we're looking into telehealth. We have uh, really haven't started yet. Um, there's uh, We live in a small rural community, um, so there's not as much of an appetite here for that. Uh, however, um, as people become more isolated and their needs are, are going to be greater, um, so we will be there with with some format of uh, virtual care uh, for them. Um, and uh, the fourth part of our plan is, is looking at how are we gonna come out of this? Um, we believe that uh, things will be far different uh, than they were pre-COVID-19. Uh, uh, the, the patient population will be different um, in that I think there's gonna be a lot of reactivation that's gonna be uh, required. Um, and um, I think we're, we're not foolish enough to think that as soon as somebody turns on the switch and says you can go ahead and operate again, that things will be exactly the way they were. Um, our treatment settings may need to change. Uh, there's, there may still be some distancing that uh, that be uh, that's going to be required. So we're really really putting a lot of effort in in looking into uh, who do we want to be and what are we going to be um, once the uh, uh, patients are allowed to come back into clinical setting. Great. Thank you so much, Patrick. And, and thanks again, Kimberly. And uh, again, guys, my name is Josh D'Angelo. I also have the fortune of being the, the CEO of Movement X. And uh, at Movement X, we've been working over the past few years to develop a bit of a different model, a model that eliminates uh, a lot of the traditional pain points for patients and providers. And our model from day one has been built upon flexibility and transparency and autonomy. And so I think we're in the fortunate position that we were pretty adaptable as things have changed a lot uh, during the COVID-19 global health pandemic. Um, our response and action to give you guys a bit of background, and, and we're based out of both Washington, D.C. and Portland, Oregon, though we have a couple providers that are spread out, a couple in New York and even in California. Uh, our response has really been guided with three kind of guiding principles, I'll say. You know, number one, first and foremost, what we're concerned about is how do we maximize the safety of our patients, of our providers, and our community? And how do we do things and make actions that are quickly and, and decisively in that interest? And then the second guiding principle for us was how do we make decisions that are in alignment with our mission, our vision, and our core values? Uh, our mission at Movement X is to help people move their best so they can live their best. And one of the beautiful parts about that mission, and I know with what all, all of what we do, is that that can be done in so many different and diverse ways. And so really tapping into the creativity in pursuit of our mission. And uh, some of our core values, we have four core values in particular that I'll cite. Uh, one is a sense of community. How do we take actions that really not only serve to protect the community and safeguard them, but how do we take actions that add to the strength and resiliency of our community? Uh, the second one is empathy, looking at how do we make decisions and, and really ask ourselves, can we put ourselves in our patient's shoes and understand what they're going through right now? Can we put ourselves in our provider's shoes and make decisions that we think are as, as empathetic as possible? Uh, our third core value is a, a sense of passion multiplied by purpose. So how do we take this passion for physical therapy, for movement health that we have, and drive it in a purposeful, united intention? And then the fourth business principle that we have is, is a Japanese word, actually, a core value called Kaizen. 
and what it means is a process of continuous improvement. So the reality is for us guys that we actually had not done any telehealth sessions prior to about a month ago, but even now taking the mindset of how can we continue to deliver the best services possible for our patients to keep them healthy and keep them moving well. How can the second telehealth session be even a little bit better than the first? How can the third be better? How can the fourth be even better than that? Um, so that was kind of our second guiding principle. And then the third guiding principle was, and I think Patrick spoke to this pretty well, how do we make decisions that are not only reactive in the short term, but are, that are good for the long-term success and viability of the organization so that we can continue serving patients not only now, but well beyond that time frame. And with the above philosophy, we've, we really tried to be on our toes and lean into the challenge, lean into the obstacles that we saw coming ahead. Um, so starting about a month ago, we swiftly and decisively took three actions. Uh, number one was we started encouraging all patients to move over to telehealth sessions, and we quickly built up the infrastructure to do so. Number two was we tried to introduce a, a creative session, what we're calling a social distancing session. So we'll still go to the individual, but we'll maintain a six to 10 foot distance from them at all times. So it takes one more step to being there in person while also maximizing the safety of the patients. And then the third thing was uh, to ramp to um, implement max safety precautions for those patients that we're still seeing in person. So making sure that our providers had the necessary PPE, even if they were just going into someone's home to protect both them and the patient. Uh, but I would say at this time, we're doing mostly telehealth and social distancing sessions. Um, we also really tried to ramp up our internal communications for our providers and for our community. You know, I think the reality is right now there's a lot of confusion at this time. And so consistent and clear and concise communication is extremely important. But we've tried to deliver messages to our providers and our community on a, on a daily basis every single morning. Um, the last two changes that I'll mention is, is one, we're also doing an exercise class that was in person, predominantly geared toward older adults over the past few months. And uh, obviously the reality now is that older adults are one of the most at-risk populations. Not only are they um, at risk for the disease and, and the, some of the more detrimental side effects, but they're also at risk because now they're at home and there's, a, and there's a greater likelihood that they're sedentary. And so we're moving that class actually digital and we're gonna start a fundraiser around that class. We're gonna offer it and we're gonna donate 100% of proceeds back to a charity that's securing PPE for our medical heroes, uh, and many of whom I know are PTs at this time as well. Um, and then the last thing is, is what we're doing for our providers. And we've tried to build up a lot of infrastructure for our providers to ensure that they feel empowered and supported even at this time. And we've actually recently seen a, a small increase in our provider applications. And so what we're doing is trying to figure out creative strategies of how at this time we can open our doors to, uh, to new individuals to come on board who are fired up about the mission, fired up about the vision and wanna be part of the solution. Um, and I guess I'll wrap up here as we transition into the question and answer uh, section by saying that if we can focus on the building of our community that does our best to keep our patients safe, and if we can be a creative force, I think we have the ability as a community, as a profession to come out on the other side of this, hopefully stronger, hopefully more united, hopefully very, very well prepared to serve our, our patient base heading into the future. With that being said, uh, let me open it up. Kimberly or Patrick, anything that you want to add at the moment? And if not, I'll dive into some questions. Um, go ahead, Patrick. Go ahead, please. Um, I was just going to say you did, you did a very good job of <laughs> talking about your mission and vision. Um, I would say I have to agree with pretty much everything that you're saying. Um, we really always traditionally in our clinic have focused on building community and um, kind of being there to serve our patients. And so everything that we're doing, our telehealth um, visits, we are offering at a really um, steep discount. Um, and so one of the questions on the side, it looks like, is if telehealth is not billable there in Connecticut. Um, in Georgia, we're still not sure what's going to happen with that either. So right now we're just offering it at a very steep discount um, so that we can still provide care because our patients are still our patients. Um, and even for those who are not able to come in to the clinic, um, if they're not, we're seeing a few post-op patients who kind of started before this all happened because um, elective surgeries have all been canceled, I'm sure, kind of all over the country. Um, so 
Um, but we want to make sure that we're still taking care of everybody. And so even if we're not seeing patients with telehealth, if we were seeing them at the time that this all kind of ramped up, we're still making calls and checking in on them and making sure everybody's okay. But the live stream class that I'm doing every day is all pro bono. Um, so we're not collecting fees from anybody. It's just an offering that we wanted to keep everybody active and kind of stay healthy together. Um, we do have a GoFundMe page. GoFundMe is matching up to $500 right now for small businesses. Um, so if people are so led, they can certainly make a donation for us. But um, other than that, you know, it's just our mission and our responsibility as healthcare providers. And like you said, Josh, if we're all in this together, which we are, um, as we've always been, we can make a big impact on the health of our population altogether. Yeah, I, I think you guys hit the nail on the head with uh, talking about the community, and, and it's the same thing that we're trying to do here um, when you're talking about reaching out to your patients and, and all that. We've had all our therapists come in early on as soon as we were uh, basically forced to mostly shut down, and, and all our therapists have been in contact with their patients and making sure that they are... Uh, uh, they're still healthy, that they're managing well, and, and those that needed help uh, in one form or another, and, and we were able to, uh, to provide that. Um, uh, the one thing I will say is that one thing that we're really pushing in our community, but also across Canada, is that um, uh, physiotherapists, or I should say physical therapists, um, uh, really have a big role to play in all of this, and not just keeping uh, people healthy from a musculoskeletal standpoint, but also uh, we have a lot of skills in terms of uh, pulmonary rehab, chest physio, and all of that. And I think that um, uh, I think everybody is going to have to look at their own practice and and make sure that uh, you know they brush up, and that that's part of what what they're going to be on the other end because I, I do feel like patients are going to present in a very different way uh, than they did uh, in the past, and and um, I think that's going to be an important part uh, of what we're going to be going forward. And, and uh, I would hate uh, for physical therapists to have to take a back seat to uh, other professions who are encroaching and, and, and onto what we normally do or we should be able to do uh, and lose out at the end. There's a big opportunity there for our profession, and, and um, uh, I think it, it's there to be seized, so it's going to be important to do so. Yeah, very well said, Kimberly and Patrick. And I, I love something that both of you said, which is coming from that pathetic perspective, even starting just checking in, checking in with our community members, checking in with our patients. That being said, checking in with our friends and family. This is something that we're all going through together. And the more that we can be there for each other, the more supportive we feel, the better able we're going to be to manage it. So I love that perspective. Um, one of the questions that it looks like we had on the comment thread, and, and please, again, if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to ask and put it on the comments. One of the questions we had is, uh, are we gonna be discussing anything about face-to-face -face visits or will it be centered all around telehealth? So I wanted to toss out the question, do you guys have providers who are still doing any face-to-face -face sessions at this time? We do. Uh, so we're providing, as I said, urgent care. Um, our professional college has been uh, uh, very stringent as to who fits under these criterias and, and we're certainly um, uh, abiding by that. Uh, we've also, as you mentioned, provided the, the proper PPE. Uh, the, the clinical setting has, has changed completely. Uh, there's no there's no waiting room. Uh, people come in and they wait in the parking lot until it's time for them to come in. And, and it's extremely stringent. Everything is wiped constantly. Um, but we do provide uh, treatment to those that, that need it uh, on an urgent care basis. So there is still some one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, treatment going on. Yeah, we are also, um, a couple of us, there are seven therapists. Not everybody is full-time. We have um, several part-time uh, treating therapists for our clinic, but we have two, maybe three, of our therapists seeing patients in the clinic who, like I said, are post-op and really, really need that hands-on care. Um, and so, uh, like Patrick said, we're, we don't have the waiting room thing happening. We ask patients to wait in their car. No family members coming in unless it's a minor and they absolutely have to have a parent there. Um, and we're keeping one or maybe two therapists at a time in the entire clinic with their one patient. Um, so that we, you know, we stick to a section and that's where we are. And we're not going to go from this place to this place, you know, 
to different stations and any equipment we need, we bring there and then leave and then everything gets doused, you know, with the bleach solution afterwards. Um, and we also have a couple of therapists going to patients' homes to see them for mobile visits. That's something we actually already had set up. We, we see mobile clients, so that was an easy transition there just to be able to move patients from clinic-based to in-home if that was something they really needed, that ongoing um, in-person care. Most of those individuals are people who need guarding, um, so they have underlying conditions or they're elderly, and because they're a fall risk, doing something with them via telehealth where they potentially could fall or not guarded, that wouldn't be safe. So their safety is obviously our first concern. Um, and then obviously following all the hand-washing guidelines um, and having masks if available um, to be around the patients because we don't want to make sure that they're a vulnerable population anyway, so we don't want to put them at risk. Yeah, and I think so much of it is centered around that notion of how do we keep the patients as safe as possible? How do we keep our community as safe as possible at this time and doing everything within our power to be able to do so? And so even asking the question, you know, am I putting this patient at more risk? Do I have the potential to do more harm by seeing this patient? If there's any thought in your mind that the answer might be yes, then we opt for a safer route, uh, speaking internally, at least for, for us, but for those patients who absolutely need it, you know, their function in the future is critical and hinging upon us coming and seeing them in some aspect or delivering some service in some aspect, then it's important to ask the question of how can that be done as safe as possible. Um, Kimberly, I was, I was curious to toss back to you and the question of, uh, one of the questions we had was, how do, you, how do you set up for those home visits? So I know you guys were set up for them prior to starting um, uh, going, you were already doing mobile visits, but what does your process look like for documentation and even payment processing? So our clinic, we are mostly out of network and out of network provider. We're in network with Medicare and Blue Cross Blue Shield. We also have a cash rate. So that applies for our in-home mobile clients. So we use our same, we use clinician as our EMR documentation and billing system. So we just document as we would and just our place of services as a mobile client instead of an in-client client. So that, that platform hasn't changed for us. Um, we do have a travel fee. Normally speaking, it's higher than what we're charging now because people who would normally be coming to the clinic are having to be seen in their homes. We don't want to put a financial burden on them. We want them to continue care. So we're discounting that considerably as well. Um, so that we can just keep providing care for them. Um, you know, right now, it sounds like none of us are really in this for the money. <laughs> um, we just want to provide care and have our, our um, services and our overhead kind of covered. But right now we're just all trying to make sure that our patients are getting what they need. Um, so that's how we're, we're set up for that. Great. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Kim, really, that right now it's, it's all centered around patients' community, keeping our patients safe and still delivering effective services to help our patients uh, move well. Um, Patrick, I was wondering if you might be able to speak to a little bit more about how you're controlling the environment in your clinic, and then if you guys have had some discussions about doing doing home visits, uh, what that discussions have looked like. So we have not addressed uh, home visit. That was not part of our business model um, in, uh, prior to all of this. Um, there are some services. Uh, it's structured a little bit differently, uh, I suppose, in Canada, where um, those um, those services are offered publicly. Um, uh, there are some private uh, providers that do strictly home care, so um, it, it's not for us, especially in our area, not a, a very big market, so that's something that we have not uh, addressed. Um, we also, uh, I mean, there's a bit of a shortage uh, of physiotherapists uh, in, uh, in our area, so um, Deploying people on home care is also, you know, very ineffective from a, uh, a critical mass standpoint and, and a business standpoint. So that's not something that we've done before. Um, and uh, we did discuss it uh, once um, uh, COVID-19 presented itself. We did discuss it with our therapists and um, there wasn't very much interest. I think there's concerns about um you know, in-home uh, safety, what are people uh, actually able to provide. Um, but as uh, I believe that up till now, uh, the public services are still available. So it is being addressed. So there's not as much of a, a, uh, an issue with that segment of the population in our area. 
Yeah, and I think that makes good sense. One question on the uh, on the comments was, how can you manage or how can you best control the home environment? You know, Patrick, I think you spoke to some of the, the challenges there. You know, I know from our perspective, we've uh, just made sure that our providers have the necessary PPE, uh, everything possible to maximize their safety and, and the patient's own safety, everything from having booties that cover shoes uh, to having appropriate personal protective equipment from masks to glasses to gloves, et cetera, et cetera. And so doing the best you can while still keeping the patient as safe as possible. Um, Patrick, I, I wanted to jump back to one of the uh, conversations that you were alluding to, and I think you have a unique perspective here. Some of the conversations that we've talked about internally at Movement X is, is how do we elevate the healthcare system's capacity at this time, right? We talk a lot about the concept of flattening the curve and trying to prevent as many people from getting as uh, sick and, and needing hospital-based services. We came up with a term internally of also asking the question, how do we raise the bar? How do we raise where that critical threshold is, where hospitals become overwhelmed? So what strategies are, are you guys taking to be able to maximize healthcare capacity at this time? So um, we addressed a little bit of that with, with our um, urgent care. So we're trying to, um, it, locally, all the physicians have remodeled their practices where, um, you know, they, they, uh, they went on rotations where uh, three physicians will be looking at um, uh, inpatient care and rounding on patients. Uh, others will be in eMERGE and uh, the others will be uh, doing in-office in um, type stuff and, and some telephone uh, medicine as well. Um, so uh, from our standpoint, we want to keep them out of the, the uh, doctor's offices because they're, they're, they have minimal staffing there. Um, and we want to keep them out of emergencies as well. And it's important also right now to, to, to remind you that we are behind where you are. So we are bracing ourselves for where, uh, what you're probably facing currently. Um, you know, and we're trying to learn from what you have done as well. Um, but as far as improving the, the capacity, that's why we reached out to the hospital. We had a, we we uh, submitted a proposal to them to say, hey, why don't you let us come in here uh, in your hospital and help uh, your departments um, and um, and see if we can get people out from uh, that are currently uh, in the hospital, uh, shorten their stay. Um, it's a very small uh, department. They have uh, three uh, full time equivalencies, so. Um, now uh, we've raised that to uh, close to nine, uh, at least available, uh, nine therapists uh, to be able to work. So that, that has raised the bar, if you will, or it's raised that critical mass of services that can be offered. Um, and it, what's happening, too, is that big centers are uh, sending back uh, expat patients that uh, were in bigger centers, and they're sending them back home, uh, whether it's post-surgically, uh, although here as well, uh, elective surgeries have been canceled, um, but they're shortening the stays in big centers who are bracing themselves for the COVID-19, sending them, sending patients back into smaller communities. And that's where we jump in, get them better, get them home and reduce their risk um, and everybody else's uh, at the same time. But it's been a great, it's been a great partnership. Um, I think, uh, you know, I can speak more to maybe a, a Canadian physiotherapist, but uh, there's a, uh, there tends to be a little bit of a divide between private and, and public um, physiotherapists. Uh, no, no animosity or anything. I don't want to present it that way, but definitely very different in terms of approach and the type of care in hospital on a public sector versus um, private practice. And um, in this case, everybody's checked their egos at the door and everybody is, is working together. And, and, you know, there's just one common goal and it's to make sure that we keep our community safe and that we can get people in their homes as opposed to hospitals. So uh, it's been a great experience from that standpoint. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, Patrick. I think one of the, one of the neat aspects of that is, is the collaborative nature of that and us finally crossing different silos to be able to work together to best take care of the public. And I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned for that as we move forward into the future. You know, and it, and it even reminds me, Kimberly, of, of the classes that you guys are holding, trying to keep people well and trying to keep them at home exercising in whatever way that you can. One of the questions that came up is, is how do you manage the liability for that? Do you have them sign an online waiver or do you take any other strategies? Um, we actually don't right now because it's not physical therapy treatment. Um, it's just a, an avenue for people to exercise as if they were watching, you know, 
beach body, doing beach body workout, you know, videos at home, um, or going outside for a walk, you know, we recommend activity. We make as PTs, we make activity recommendations and exercise recommendations. Um, and so this is just an avenue for people to be able to exercise. Um, I do give kind of cues on form, um, but again, just like any exercise instructor would. Um, so because I'm not having a touch point with people, um, because it's, it's a live stream, I can't see them. I can't see what they're doing. So, um, you know, really it's, it's up to the individual to make sure that, and I, Constantly remind them, if this is too much for you, if you have pain, stop, march in place, skip this one. Um, of course, we are still available as practitioners to help them. So they can, we are available if they want to call, if they have any questions, if they're feeling pain with anything. They don't have to just deal with pain just because we have a pandemic right now. We can still reach them and be available to treat them as therapists, but that's separate. We're using a different platform for that where we're doing an initial evaluation as, as well as we possibly can um, via telehealth. Um, and I noticed one of the questions was what platforms are you using? We, there's a platform called doxy.me. So it's D-O-X-Y, are you guys using this? Dot M-E. We are not, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we've been using. Um, if it gets glitchy, um, you know, the um, CMS has said that you can use sort of less HIPAA secure platforms like FaceTime and Skype right now. Um, I'm sure they'll give us some more restrictions as time goes on. But <laughs> <laughs> so if it gets glitchy and we're having trouble, then we're switching over to FaceTime or Skype. And truthfully, with a lot of our population, um, they're used to FaceTime is, you know, kind of ubiquitous. A lot of people are used to FaceTiming with their grandkids or, you know, whatever. So um, as long as, and that we do get a verbal from them that you are okay, that this is not a secure platform. And we have separate telehealth paperwork that we have had everybody who's transitioned to that platform sign saying, you know, that yes, we're doing telehealth. We know that these are telehealth services, that they're okay with our billing, um, which again is just cash right now. And it's been steeply discounted. If insurances are going to start paying for it, then we'll probably submit to their insurance company if we're in network. Um, with their insurance, um, but that they are okay with using a less secure platform if the one that we're trying to use, a HIPAA compliant, is not working for some reason. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. And I think, uh, and, and your strategy for telehealth is very similar to ours. You know, have a plan A, plan B, plan C. Right. And uh, <laughs> even, you know, for us, it's the same. We use a, a Google Meet, a HIPAA compliant version of it. But now with FaceTime being acceptable to use, we always use that as a backup. And uh, I've had even patients who are 93 who are resistant to trying it at first. Afterwards, at the end of their first session, say this is much easier than I thought it was going to be. So we're seeing some early successes with that. And I, I think we're seeing actually a couple themes arise. Obviously, the theme of safety is so big and so important. That's on the forefront of everyone's mind. The, the second theme that I'm seeing coming up is, is communication, you know, reaching out to our patients, reaching out to our physician collaborators, right? Reaching out to communities via telehealth saying, if you have any problems with this exercise, please let us know. We want to be a source of information, of education, uh, of engagement and empowerment at this time to put our best foot forward and be able to assist the public as much as is possible. There was a question earlier that I saw go by and, and it asked, um, do, do you think that the uh, future of PT is through telehealth? Um, and personally, I, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, I do think that we separate ourselves from other professions uh, with our hands, with our approach, with our manual therapy, um, with, with uh, you know, the one-on-one -on -one empathy, uh, the reassurance and what we do for patients. Um, I think there's always going to be a major role for that uh, within our practices. I do think it's going to be part of the new reality, um, but I think it'll be yeah, one more tool. Uh, it'll be something that, that um, I, I think as the population becomes more and more savvy with, with electronics and, and, and um, uh, you know, I mean, there's been so many Zoom meetings and Facebook Live and everything that people are now participating in. I think that um, it, it's going to quash maybe that fear that, that, uh, of online services. But I think that ultimately um, that physical presence will always be a, a big part of what we do. And, and, um, and I, I also think that if we 
if too much of our, our businesses and too much of our profession moves to an online platform, um, I think that's how we can be much more easily uh, duplicated and replicated and and um, pushed out of the continuum. So I, I do think that when we come out on the other side, we have to be present uh, on a one-on-one -on -one physical uh, assessment and treatment uh, mm -hmm. platform for sure. 100% agree. Yeah. We yeah. have a, a population, probably you guys too, where people tend to travel for work, normally speaking. Um, so they'll be gone for a week or two at a clip because they're traveling to wherever and seeing clients and whatever business um, they they are in. And I could see it as being a really good way for us to continue doing treatment while they're gone. Obviously more exercise based, but while they're out of town, um, we could still do a session, even if it's just, you know, if we're normally seeing twice a week, maybe just once that week, we're going to do a telehealth session that's you know, maybe half the time that we normally would just so that we're getting a session in with you so that they are continuing care and not just, nope, I traveled and I didn't do any of my exercises and now things hurt more. So um, I, I agree. I think it'll be a tool moving forward, but I don't think it's going to take over our practice. Yeah, and there's some great early research, for example, with uh, total joint replacements. I believe the article looked at knee and hip replacements and uh, it demonstrated some validity for telehealth in that article. It wasn't a, a you know, huge sample size, but I think that certain conditions, individuals might be more willing to transition to telehealth if they had a comfort with this at baseline or if a clinic is offering this. You know, one of the strategies that we utilized early on was as soon as we kind of realized what trajectory we were on was, uh, you know, accepting that this is likely going to be our reality for the next two to three months what else will likely be true? You know, there's going to be a quick rush over to telehealth. What does that mean? Okay, more people are likely to be building their comfort with digital tools, whether it's through events or even healthcare. Okay, so if this is likely going to be a long-term solution for or a short-term solution, that will be an option in the future. How can we put infrastructure to it to, to make it meaningful and to ensure that we're providing good quality care with it? Um, one of the questions that popped up, uh, I think it's, it's a difficult question, it's, it's a good question, but I want to make sure that we face it head on, is uh, how have you managed reducing staff? Have you guys furloughed employees or have you applied for small business loans? Does anyone want to speak to uh, how they've managed the, the business side and the financial side of this uh, pandemic? Well, uh, I mean, it, it's... Our reality is probably different than um, than yours, given that um, we have completely different governments. Um, but um, for business, uh, we've had to uh, uh, lay off uh, a lot of employees. Um, there are um, uh, government subsidies that are available to businesses uh, and to the individuals, so um, uh, nobody is. Uh, uh, left in the dark, so that that has been good from that standpoint. But basically, as a business, I think the reality is is that um, the next three months are going to be very difficult. It, I mean, we're going to be operating uh, at a great loss. Um, and and um, I think you were absolutely right earlier when you said that uh, we're uh, we're not in it for the money for the uh, for the next few months. Um, you know, I think that our um, the currency that we're trying to deal in right now is is basically um, getting a lot of social credit from uh, from our community um, and and um, building uh, relationships with our patients and with our patient community. Um, that's been mostly the currency we've been going after uh, since we've been closed uh, and and trying to be there for the for our community um, because no amount of of telehealth and and, and you know, a discounted telehealth and, and few urgent care that we're doing is is going to have any kind of significant impact on on uh, on the bottom line. I mean, we've we've basically uh, accepted the fact that we're going to be uh, operating at a loss, um, and and that's why we've concentrated on what are we going to be on the other end of this. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Patrick. And and for us, you know, we we have been. Again, I mentioned the word adaptable. We have been fortunate to be adaptable in, in these circumstances because we did not have a brick and mortar. Um, so there's not a facility that we have to continue to pay rent on. We center ourselves actually around a, a tech platform and that has enabled us to keep uh, overhead as, as minimal as possible. So we've been fortunate that we haven't had to lay anyone off, but nonetheless, there are still a lot of changes that are happening. 
And uh, one of the questions was around small business loans. And there's a program going on right now uh, called the PPP or the, the Payroll Protection Program. Uh, that's a small business loan through the Small Business Administration that is likely going to be forgiven if you take the appropriate course of action. Uh, the challenge has been for us, at least internally, is, is the demand for it is so incredibly high with the opportunity to um, get attention, get questions answered, to be able to successfully even apply for the program has, has been somewhat limited. Uh, so most banks are only accepting right now their own customers to apply through them uh, as a lender. And so we face some challenges. I have to give a shout out to Keaton Ray, our COO, was uh, applying to as, as, through as many different avenues as she could last night. So there are some small business programs, uh, small business loans that can be helpful at this time on the United States side. All right, another couple questions here. So let's see. Um, what documentation do we need to do to ensure an evaluation completed by telehealth session holds up to review, especially given no hands-on? So, so I think that's a great question. How do we maximize the telehealth uh, experience? Kimberly, since you guys have, have started that, do you want to jump in there? Sure. Um, so the, the first kind of half of that question of how do you complete an assessment via telehealth? Obviously, we're not putting our hands on them. So um, you're not getting information like joint play and you know, temperature and things like that, but we can take a look at how people move. So if you're familiar with the functional movement screen and selective functional movement assessment, um, that's something that we employ in our practice regularly anyway. All of our clinicians, if not certified or at least familiar with it and utilize it quite a lot. Um, so we can take them through mov movements um, and kind of grade them based on that because there's a grading system. Um, but even if not, I mean, if you, you know, you have a cervical patient and you just have them go through range of motion and you're going to give your best judgment as to, if not degrees and at least percentages of how they're moving and whether or not that movement is painful, you know, are repeated measures or repeated movements painful or um, increasing pain, reducing pain, that type of thing. Um, we had one therapist who did a hand evaluation via telehealth um, a day or two ago. And because she is very creative, she had the person hold their hand up in front of the camera and she has gonion orders at home because most of us have been to conferences where you just like grab gonies and tape measures and stuff. And so she just held it up to the screen and got a range of motion measurement um, based on how the person was moving their hands. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're all trying to, figure out the best way to get the, as much information as we possibly can. You know, obviously we can't do strength, but can a person go against gravity? Or, you know, if you're measuring um, strength of the quad or the leg, can they do a sit to stand on one leg from a chair? So there are kind of functional ways that you can take a look at how strong a person is, even if you're not giving them a muscular, you know, a manual muscle test grade of, you know, zero through five. Um, in terms of guarding and liability and all of that, um, if you're going to ask somebody to stand on one leg, make sure they've got a counter to hold on to. You know, um, there's a lot of moving around the space. So we've been doing um, our telehealth appointments for the last few weeks. We kind of jumped on this fairly early on. Um, and there's definitely a lot of, you know, angling the phone or angling the computer. Like, can you see me? Okay, here are my legs. Here's what I'm doing. Or now I'm going to lay on the floor and take my computer with me so I can show them what to do. Um, and they're doing the same thing. Um, so I think everybody's really adaptable and Everybody understands this isn't ideal, so everyone's just kind of rolling with it. Um, you know, we haven't had any pushback about that. Um, and in terms of documentation, we have created a template in our EMR that's specifically for a telehealth daily visit um, or a telehealth initial evaluation that has telehealth language in there saying that this was all done via telehealth. Um, and so obviously we can't do XYZ, but these are the measures that we have, and this is what we can see. So we, you can get a great deal of information from people um, in that way, as long as you're just documenting this was all done via telehealth platform. There was no hands-on, no hands-on treatment, but advice was given. Um, patient was taken through XYZ exercise. They had um, a good demonstration, good form of the exercise, and good understanding, and then here's my plan of care. So you're changing around what you're saying a little bit just so that it's very clear what you're doing um, and that it was not an in-person session. Yeah, and one note that is that we've had a number of questions about billing as we've gone through the conversation. And uh, if anyone at home has questions specifically about billing, 
feel free to email advocacy at APTA.org or visit APTA.org slash telehealth if you want more info centered around billing. Uh, we have some great experts who are doing a lot of, a lot of wonderful work to be able to inform uh, the public here as much as possible. And uh, I love all of what you said, Kimberly, and I think a couple, a couple of thoughts come to mind that I wanted to share as well. We've had a lot of conversations around telehealth and, and being such a hands-on profession, how can we make sure that we're delivering the same value? And, uh, and it really starts with mindset. And, and I think a couple of things have helped us. Number one, uh, I think back to the importance of the subjective exam. There's a great quote by, uh, um, I think it was by McKenzie, one that a friend of mine, Fosa Guavadia, loves. He says that if you listen to a patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. If you listen to a patient for long enough, they'll tell you how to fix them. If you listen to a patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. If you listen to a patient for long enough, they'll tell you how to fix them. So don't discount the importance of the subjective exam, especially if we have the opportunity to have more time with our patients. There's so much information that we can gather. And then uh, the second piece of it was a, a great quote that I think Fred Gilbert came up with on the spot. Fred's a chief people officer, also a physical therapist with Movement X. And uh, we're having a conversation around mindset. And he said, remember that the hands don't know what to do unless the brain tells them what to do, right? So really what people are paying for is our mind, our education, and that we have the ability to provide education and resources and guidance through virtual platforms right now. So let's lean into it the best that we possibly can and continue to support our, our patients and clientele. Very good. And I think I would love to focus kind of the, the last few minutes of conversation here around uh, looking ahead into the future. Obviously we know here in the States, we have, we have a challenging uh, couple, couple of weeks ahead you know, as we expect things to uh, rise towards the peak. Patrick, I know you guys are a little bit behind us and, and hopefully have uh, been able to take some lessons from the experience here. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, we've talked a little bit about how telehealth is likely going to be an option in the future. What else do you foresee as, as changes that will be made after the pandemic as we get to the other side of this? Patrick, you talked a little bit about uh, respiratory therapy, you know, and, and really understanding the mechanics and the nature of COVID-19 and how we can really address the movement system and make sure that we understand how this particular disease has impacted us. So I was wondering if you might be able to kickstart that discussion and dive a little bit more into any thoughts on the, on the treatment techniques or, or what patients might be seeking, as well as how is the landscape going to change uh, even more, even more significantly as we move forward? Well, uh, on the uh, cardiopulmonary uh, part of things, um, I think obviously this, this disease is, is all lung-based. Um, so I, I think at the end of this, uh, people are going to be uh, inactive, uh, especially once they've contracted it and they come out of this, they're going to have some, some chest expansion issues. They're going to have some, uh, some deconditioning issues. And I think that um, you know, what we're looking at is to say, okay, um, what kind of transition type of facility can we be where we're going to be looking at patients that are either coming out of hospitals or, or even if they've contracted the disease and they're, they're at home, they're still going to be severely deconditioned and, and it, it, God forbid they've had uh, any uh, other uh, predisposing, uh, predisposing uh, conditions. Um, where they're going to be, you know, even further uh, behind the, the eight ball from that standpoint. So we're looking at uh, at providing services that are going to be the transition between, um, you know, having not done anything, you know, having poor lung capacity to, you know, uh, being healthy and, and being able to move around and do, you know, the things that you need to do at home. So uh, I don't think that we'll have to change our practice to, you know, do uh, drainage and, and those kinds of things. But um, in terms of chest expansion, chest mobility, spinal mobility, um, those are things that are probably easy, easily uh, adapted into uh, more of an MSK type of uh, caseload or a physiotherapist um, to expand their, their, uh, their expertise uh, to address those issues. Um, one of the things that we don't know is uh, how, um, how people are, are, are they going to be afraid to come out into the community? How long is it going to take for them to trust being in public settings again? Um, so that's something that we're trying to look into and say, okay, well, 
are we going to need to modify our treatment areas? Um, we certainly use private rooms, but we have more open areas, be it in the gym, be it um, you know uh, beds that are, are uh, one next to uh, another. Are we going to have to you know put up barriers? Are we going to have to be uh, distancing them more? Uh, so those are all questions that we're asking ourselves. You know, what are we going to need to to be doing on the other end of this to get back into offering services as soon as possible? Yeah, a quick a quick anecdote that I want to mention as well. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there, Patrick. We actually had a, a patient, uh, one of Keaton's patients, who I mentioned earlier, who's our COO, and she was doing some wellness with a client of hers who was eighty years old, and uh, they would do a lot of weightlifting resistance training, and. Um, and she said he was doing great before all this started. He was back squatting 100 pounds. He was, you know, deadlifting. He was doing really well. And uh, she, as, as everything came down, obviously, they stopped doing in-person sessions. And she reached out to him a couple times and said that, uh, you know, let's start telehealth. I think you would really benefit from it. But he was a bit resistant to it. And finally, after it's been about a month now, he reached back out, I believe, last week and wanted to start something and so he has a few dumbbells and a few resistance bands laying around. And she said, uh, you know, for this man who was back squatting 100 pounds before this all started, just after one month, he was having trouble using 10-pound dumbbells because he hadn't been resistance training. And so that's that's a question that really begs uh, of us. What What is the public, you know, what is society, what are individuals who are more likely to be at higher, higher risk for muscle atrophy and deconditioning? What are they doing right now? And what will they look like on the other side of this? And how can we be a trusted resource for them moving forward as patients realize that they might have a greater need than they do when they're in their homes all day long? Um, if I can add on to that, Josh, kind of in terms of, you know, where we see things going and coming out stronger and thriving on the other side. Um, so as I said, our clinic, we focus on health promotion and injury and disease prevention. And in every single one of our initial evaluations for our kind of rehab patients, we also see patients for kind of health promotion and um, prevention, what we've typically, typically called wellness, um, where we're looking more at like healthy lifestyle and coaching and then exercise based because that's our, you know, our niche. Um, but in every single one of our evaluations, we have questions that address elements of a healthy lifestyle. So how do you get 150 minutes of exercise on a regular basis per week? Um, do you eat at least five servings of vegetables and fruits every day? Do you get at least six to nine hours of sleep on a consistent basis every night? And in the last two weeks, rate your stress level zero to 10. Um, we want to make sure that we're touching on all of those. And if, if there are any flags in those questions, we can take a deeper dive and it's part of treatment. So as, you know, over the next several sessions, that's something that when you're with your patient, you're having conversation, that's part of the conversation. Um, helping them realize how their lifestyle um, not only impacts what they're in for right now. So whether it's because they've had chronic pain or acute pain or um, they've had a surgery, you know, there are certain lifestyle factors in place that have A, led up to that condition and B, will affect their ability to heal from it. Um, and I think right now, so I'm a part of a group called the um, APHPT, which is the Academy of Prevention Health Promotion Therapies, um, primarily PTs and OTs, some PTs as well. Um, and kind of a conversation that we've all been having um, is how important is baseline health right now? You know, part of the reason why the U.S. is being hit so hard and younger patients, younger population is being hit so hard in the U.S. with this disease is because... Generally speaking, as a population, we are much um, in, in poorer health. So even people in their 30s have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. Even if they're not diagnosed as diabetic, they're maybe pre-diabetic. They don't know it. They're carrying around too much weight. Um, they don't exercise. They're not eating enough plants. And things like that are actually, they're really putting people at risk. They're putting us as a population at risk. And so, you know, baseline health is, is always important. This is always something that we've sort of been shouting from the rooftops. But right now, the best way to protect yourself, other than the, you know, the social distancing and things that we're already doing, is to make sure that you are in the best possible health that you can be in. And so I think as a profession, that's going to be something that, you know, there's sort of this rising tide within physical therapy, that there are more and more of us saying this. And if, if we're all saying it and all talking about it and not just leaving it to physicians, um, who very often, unfortunately, don't talk about it, 
um, maybe people will start to listen um, and really hear us and maybe start to, to change some behaviors. I think that this, this pandemic is obviously going to affect us as a population in a way that in 100 years people haven't been affected. Um, and I think that that baseline health conversation is going to come to the forefront. Um, you know, in all the news feeds, it is coming to the forefront. And I think it's going to continue to be a part of the conversation. So as physical therapists, where are we in that conversation? And how are we um, positioning ourselves to be able to address that effectively with our patients and with our communities? I love that perspective, Kimberly. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, two quick thoughts, and then we'll go around. I know we're running short on time for, for final comments from uh, each of us as we start to wrap up. You know, but I think a couple of truths from what you said, Kimberly. Number one is we're going to be have, have to be movement system experts better than we ever have before and more comprehensively than we ever have before, not only looking at respiratory function, but also looking at street sleep, also looking at stress and anxiety, right? That's one of the, the biggest challenges that is out there in times of uncertainty. So how can we comprehensively examine for all of that, bake it into an evaluation and give tangible, palpable action moving forward? And if we can do that effectively, we actually have an opportunity here to further separate ourselves as a trusted sort of information, a source of information and education for the public. And then the other, the other thing is a quick, another quick anecdote I'll share. I was talking with a physician recently, a primary care physician, who said that, you know, we've always known how important exercise is, but we've had challenges in that we say, okay, you should go to a personal trainer or go to physical therapy for 12 sessions. And then that's typically all they receive and they fall into the same patterns at home. So what sort of creative solutions can we make in order to be a, sol uh, a solution be a place where patients can come for sustainable change. I think that'll come up to the forefront of the conversation as well. Um, with that being said, uh, Patrick, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Any final comments, any final thoughts that you'd like to share? And also, if you wouldn't mind, please telling us how we can get into contact with you after the conversation, if there are any more questions out there. Well, first, I'll, I'll say thank you for uh, having me on this uh, Facebook Live. Uh, I hope I was able to uh, uh, bring some good ideas for, for some folks. Um, uh, the final thought for me is, uh, I guess one of our, uh, use the word guiding principles. Um, the first thing we did is we asked ourselves, uh, when this is all going to be over, uh, how do we want to be remembered? And um, I, I would strongly encourage everybody to ask themselves that question. And um, uh, to me, it's a bit of a call to action and say, what can we do? How can we be um, of help to, to our, our communities, our patients, and, and ultimately to our profession. So um, that would be my final thought. So again, thank you very much um, for having me. And uh, if you wish to get in touch with me, you can reach me by email, uh, pkn uh, at obcivio.com. So hopefully I'm doing this right. There you go. Thank you, Patrick. Um, so just to reiterate the, because there's a question on the side about the, the organization that I mentioned, it's the Academy of Prevention and Health Promotion Therapists, um, or APHPT, um, and they're at APHPT.org if you want to take a look um, on the web. I work at Ahead Physical Therapy in Roswell, Georgia, and we are at asaphysicaltherapy.com. My email is kim at asaphysicaltherapy.com if you want to get in touch with me. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook. Like I said, I'm live streaming every day at 2.30. Of course, not today. I already pre-recorded a video this morning and posted it, so it's there for everybody. But Monday through Friday, we've got exercise um, videos going. They're about 20 minutes. And um, it's been a privilege to be on here with you guys um, and to answer questions and um, to be chosen as someone to, to have this discussion. So thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Kimberly. And, uh, and again, thank you, Patrick. And I, I know for me, you know, one of the places that I find strength is by looking to people to the left of me, looking to people to the right of me. And uh, at least on my screen, each of you are on separate sides. And so I'm so appreciative for the two of you joining us here today. And I'm so thankful for all the viewers at home. And, uh, and I really believe that if we bring our, our creativity, if we really focus on safety, if we focus on delivering value to our patients and, and the public right now, then we may see some creative solutions moving forward. Uh, again, my name is Josh D'Angelo. The last name is spelled with an apostrophe, and uh, it does give a lot of challenges uh, in life. But D'Angelo, Josh D'Angelo, you can find me on, on Facebook or Instagram, D-A-N-G-E-L-O. 
I'm part of a company called Movement X. Our website is movement-x.com. If you want to reach me directly, feel free to find Facebook or Instagram or just email me as josh at movement-x.com. Uh, if there are any ongoing questions, that being said, please feel free to leave comments after the fact in the Facebook Live and the Facebook video that gets posted and or comments on uh, social media. And I know we'll do our best to respond. But thank you. Thank you so much again. Thank you for being part, an active part of the American Physical Therapy Association community. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Kimberly. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing hopefully the positive change that we can bring about uh, as we all encounter difficult and uncertain times moving forward. So thanks so much again. Thank you. Thank you. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA has set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org slash coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.